a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. On February 17, 1985, Gail Owens parks in the driveway of her suburban Memphis home. It's a school night for her 12-year-old Stephen and 8-year-old Brian, so she's focused on getting them to bed. But as soon as Stephen steps out of the car, he notices something strange. The door to his father's Honda is open. His house keys are hanging in the back door lock. Stephen steps inside. He sees the kitchen table is pushed up against the wall. The chairs are knocked over. It looks like their house has been ransacked. It's at that moment he sees his father curled up on the living room floor, blood pooled around him. It looks as though he's been shot in the head, but Stephen can still hear him breathing. He's still alive. When Gail Owens sees her husband on the floor, she shouts, he's been shot. She grabs both sons and brings them to the neighbors to call the police. She's in shock. Gail and her husband had the perfect family. A house, good jobs, and two kids in a loving Christian community. Things like this just don't happen in the Memphis suburbs. But in a place where everything is white picket fences and Sunday sermons, there's always something darker just beneath the surface. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ron Owens is rushed to Baptist Memorial Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and he's in critical condition. Now, this is the very same hospital where Ron works. He's the associate director of nursing, and now it's his colleagues who are fighting to keep him alive. Gail is sitting, waiting, waiting to see if he's going to make it. Her short hair is limp. Her pudgy cheeks are drained of blood. She looks mortified. She's just in absolute shock, and she knows that the odds of his survival are very slim. But Ron's a fighter. He could make it out of this. His nose is broken, but he has not been shot. But it does look like a blunt object, possibly a tire iron, has hit him over the head repeatedly. Blood is filling his sinus cavity. His face is covered in cuts and scrapes. There's a deep gash in his forehead. His skull has been fractured, and shards of it have been stabbed into his brain. It is not looking good. Right, and in looking at Ron, they also notice that there's a broken finger on his right hand. This tells them that there was some sort of fight. It looks like a defensive wound. And this finger is so broken, it is nearly amputated. But it does look like Ron fought and he defended himself to the very end. After a few hours, the trauma has caused his brain to become swollen and his head misshapen. It has now been four hours since the attack, and the doctors and nurses, they're running out of options. There's just 
too many wounds. There's too much bleeding. Further investigation will reveal that he's been bludgeoned at least 21 times. But sadly, at 2.40 in the morning on February 18th, 1985, Ron Owens is declared dead. When this Memphis suburb of Bartlett finds out about Ron's murder, it just sends a shockwave through the town. Because all these neighbors knew Ron. He was a man that didn't have enemies. He was doing God's work. On weekdays, you'd find him at his job at the hospital. And on weekends, he's at the Abundant Life Church with his family. He even was the coach of youth league basketball. Seven of those players would become pallbearers at his funeral. He's a pillar of the community. Like, who could possibly want to kill him? It's just absolutely unthinkable. But before he's laid to rest, a call comes through to the Owens house. Gail, his now widow, answers the phone. And on the phone is this guy, George James. He tells Gail that he wants money. Or else. And Gail's thinking to herself, is this the guy who killed my husband? Yeah, she's afraid she could be in danger. But she also doesn't really have a cent to spare. She is already in tons of debt. She's at risk of losing her home, of losing her car. And with the funeral costs now, money is tight. But George James isn't interested in her troubles. He doesn't care. He wants money and he wants it now. The warning in his voice tells Gail that she doesn't have much time. At this point, Gail has no choice but to call Ron's hospital to ask about his life insurance policy and subsequent payout. Yeah, we all know that when your husband dies, going for the life insurance before he's buried, not a great look, Gail. We don't love it. Mm -mm. It's classic Black Widow behavior. But Gail does not have a lot of options right now. She's being threatened, and she stands to get more than $100,000 from this policy. When she calls the hospital, she's hoping the payout will come real quick. But, you know, she wants to get the ball rolling, even if it won't. The problem? She's too late. Because of the way Ron died, the fact that he was murdered, attacked and murdered, the first thing that police do is freeze all of the accounts. Because money, as we all know, is a very big motivator. In murder. So they freeze the accounts to make sure that there is no wrongdoing. So no money can be given out until they rule out any of the beneficiaries of the payout. And that includes Gail. And let's be honest, you usually do check those closest to the victim first. And not long after that first call, George James calls her back again. And this time, it's more pressing. It's more urgent. He tells Gail that he wants $1,000 right now or else. But Gail doesn't have that. She begs him to give her like 60, 90 days just until she can get this life insurance payout. Then she'll get him the money. Well, it doesn't look like she's going to get it anytime soon. There's detectives all over her house, and she's just busy taking care of Ron's relatives and grieving. Maybe that's why George James is so insistent. Gail's in this vulnerable state. It is a good time to take advantage of her. So he insists further. He wants to meet. She's begging for more time. He's not letting up. And finally, Gail agrees to meet him in the parking lot of the Rally Springs Mall on the north side of Memphis. Little does she know, she's walking right into a trap. Part of me is just sitting there 
wondering, why is Gail going to meet this guy? This sounds really scary. Gail, don't do that. But on February 20th, 1985, just mere days after her husband's death, Gail Owens pulls into the parking lot next to the J.C. Penny, and she sees this guy pacing beside his car. This has got to be George James. Gail hands George all of the cash she has on hand, which is two $20 bills and two tens. And I'm not trying to brag. I'm decent at math. That is $60, which is a lot less than the $1,000 he wants. Yeah, she's doing the best she can, I guess. Uh, They get in the car together to talk maybe about this discrepancy. George, though, he seems nervous. He's stammering as he's talking to her and saying, you know, I just want you to know because, you know, like you said, do you actually think that Bubba did that? He's asking her about the murder. And Gail tells him she doesn't know who killed her husband. How could she possibly know? The police are still investigating. But George keeps at it. He keeps bringing it up. He keeps wanting to talk to her about it. Read the room, George. It it almost seems like Gail and George have met before. Meanwhile, across the street, the police are there. And they're listening in through the wire under George James's shirt. Oh, they're investigating all right. And George is getting exactly what they want. He asks Gail again, Why did you want Ron dead? And Gail says, We just had about 13 years. You don't need to know anything else. I don't know what's going on or who did it or anything. I'm just sitting on pins and needles and I don't know who else is going to call. That's exactly what the police want to hear. Within seconds, the police cars screech to a halt all around this car that Gail's in. Gail is suddenly in a blind panic. She's asking, what's going on? What's happening? Cops surround the vehicle and command her to get out of the car. When Gail unlocks the door, she's pulled out of the car and arrested right on the spot. She's forced into the backseat of a cruiser in handcuffs, and they drive her to the station. From the back seat of the police car, she keeps telling them she was just meeting George because she thought he had information about her husband's murderer. That's her story. Until the police tell her that the entire conversation she had with him was recorded. Uh-oh. Suddenly, Gail's changing her tune. She tells the police she only wanted her husband roughed up. She didn't want him killed. She makes all kinds of excuses. And by the time they reach the police station... She's confessed to hiring a hitman to kill Ron Owens. I don't know about you, Quinn, but something is rotten in the city of Memphis. Yeah, something stinks. It's pretty interesting when she says to him, I don't know who else is going to call. You're like, what? Are there a bunch of people trying to blackmail you? Like, who are all these people that have shit on you? And how many of them are going to keep quiet for a cool 60. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the down payment of 60 bucks. It's just so crazy too. I mean, of course, you know, I mean, that's what makes this story interesting is just everything is so idyllic. And then to find out that she's a part of this, that she's a part of this crime is shocking. It's shocking. And who are these people? Are they friends of hers? I mean, Who was George James and who was Bubba? And who the heck killed Ron Owens? 
As it turns out, Gail has been very busy the last couple of months. You know, she's crossing things off her to-do list. And one of the things on her to-do list is to find someone to murder her husband. So in December of 1984, Gail Owens begins driving around the Bearwater district of Memphis. At the time, Bearwater is an incredibly impoverished neighborhood. A lot of the residents there are working-class iron and tire workers. It's an incredibly far cry from the picturesque suburban neighborhood where the Owens live. Yeah, people would stand on corners and have a chit-chat drinking Thunderbird wine, which I read is a cheap, high-alcohol white wine popular at the time. And I don't know, it brought me back. I wonder if it's like mm. Boone's Farm, which is what I grew up drinking in high school, um, which is like wine, but you can buy it blue Hawaiian flavored. Oh, fun. How tropical. Yeah. I love my white wine tropical. Right. So in addition to these people drinking what I assume is delicious wine, they could also purchase weed and cocaine here. It was not unusual to see uh, maybe someone like Gail driving a new sedan through this neighborhood because even soccer moms like to get their fix. Or I should say, especially soccer moms. We love it. Do you know how hard it is to be driving those kids back and forth? You need something to You need uppers, you you need downers, you need something to cancel out the uppers and cancel out the downers. It's a lot of work being a soccer mom. But here's the thing. Gail's different. She's looking for a different fix, man. (laughs) She's got a rep. She's got a reputation. And it makes her a ripe target. Now, Quinn, can you guess what her nickname is? Um, good looking. (laughs) No, it's big money. Oh, uh, that's pretty good too. I'm not. I'm not upset about it. You know, I, I I wouldn't mind being called big money in the right circumstances, but her circumstances, it's not a compliment. They call her this because she just keeps giving out cash, and it's not like she's giving them cash to go get a treat or buy some more Thunderbird wine. No, no, no. She's looking to hire someone for a job. A hit job. She would drive around Bearwater and ask literally anyone if they would kill her husband. I can't imagine that being a conversation starter, but alas, <laughs> she's making tons she, of friends. She's making a lot of new friends walking around going, Can you murder my husband? Can you murder my husband? Can you murder my husband? If you want a little cash, all you gotta do is just kill my husband. So word gets around that she's doing this. And so people were excited to see her and she'd ask them to murder her husband and they'd take the money and then they'd run. Sure, of course. And in Christmas of 1984, Gail parks her Buick on the corner next to George James and two of his pals, Bubba and Michael. And she motions for them to come on over to the car and she makes her standard offer. She gives George James, buckle up here, (gasps) $40 now. <laughs> but she promises another 15000 if he'll do the job and kill her husband. She hands him a photo of Ron and a map of her house. I mean, maybe she's getting wiser, right? She's like having a lower down payment and a higher, you know, reward for the payout. I, I don't know. Either way, at this point, her reputation precedes her. So he's happy to just take the money, just like everyone else has. One report says that at this point in time, she's given out something like $5,000 to people in Bearwater. That's a lot of $40 down payments. <laughs> I, see, I think she kept lowering when she realized they were running. I bet the first one she offered was like a thousand, and then she was like, "Ooh, 
They left. That didn't go okay, well. 500. Like, I think she's really, like, she's figuring it out. You now know? she's just driving around with the window down yelling, I'll give you a buck to kill my husband. <laughs> kill my husband. Kill my husband. And what's so crazy about this is she's doing this for months. It's like a lot of premeditation. A very severe amount of premeditation is happening right now. Eventually, though, Gail is annoyed. She keeps getting ripped off, and no one is taking her offer seriously. Of course nobody's taking her seriously. A $40 down payment? I am not in the biz, I guess, the murder biz, but it is hard to take seriously. Well, Quinn, this is in the 80s. $40 is the equivalent to a million dollars today, you know? (laughs) But listen, they're extorting her. They're stealing from her, right? I mean, well, that's in her mind, right? But it's like, which is worse? Threatening to murder or, or asking for a murder or stealing? I don't know. Listen, I don't feel bad for her if that's clear. She's asking someone to do a murder. But it all reaches a fever pitch when George James tells her that he's going to go to the police with the picture and the map that she handed out to him if she doesn't pay him more money. And so Gail's desperate. She has become a punchline, now a target. Is she a victim, though, as well? Why did she want Ron dead? We don't know. Seems like we didn't really know who Gail was. Maybe we don't know who Ron is. Anytime these men ask her, though, she'll just say something very vague about being in a bad marriage, and she won't go into any details. Later, though, when circumstances force Gail's hand and she does open up, the allegations of what she was subjected to are shocking. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, on the outside, as we said, Gail and Ron Owens have a perfect married life. Their neighbors describe their relationship as loving and ideal, Their kids, Stephen and Brian, are happy and see their parents' relationship as a model to them. They're very active in the Abundant Life Church, but on the inside, behind closed doors, Ron and Gail's marriage is on the rocks. 
Gail says that their relationship is marred by perversions and sexual humiliations. On the night of their wedding, she says that Ron insisted on having rough sex and that Gail, who was a virgin at this time, found this whole experience traumatizing. Of course she did. By the end of the night, Ron told Gail that if she couldn't satisfy his needs, he'd find someone who could. So obviously they were not off to a great start. And from there, it only gets worse. When Gail finally gets pregnant with their first child, Ron isn't happy. To the outside world, he's playing the role of a perfect father. He's pretending to be excited. But according to Gail, he's really upset at the disruption to his life, his his master plan. And then when she gets pregnant with her second child, three years later, she claims that Ron insists on having sex that causes her to bleed all over the bedsheets. And for Ron's part, she says that he was just sexually frustrated in the relationship and she can't satisfy him. So she's just trying to do her best because of that to keep a real tidy house and have everything nice and in order and pretty for him. She's trying just so hard to be the wife she thinks Ron wants. But in return, Ron is just being mentally and sexually abusive towards Gail. She claims that he uses inanimate objects on her in the bedroom. In one case, she claims he used a rough clay marijuana pipe that caused her to bleed. And in another case, he broke the neck of a wine bottle while inside her. I mean, these allegations, they're so extreme. They're so upsetting. Mm -hmm. But we do have to continue to characterize them as allegations because there's no medical records of Gail being treated for anything that would have been related to these occurrences. Um, There's no way we can corroborate this. But Gail must have felt she was living in a nightmare. Whether she was his victim or not, she still wanted to be with Ron until the inevitable happened. From the beginning, he said if he wasn't satisfied at home, he would have to seek it elsewhere. So while Gail suspects that he's having an affair, she doesn't have proof That is, until she follows him to work one morning and sees him flirting with a co-worker in the hospital parking lot. And she sees this, and something in her just snaps. She gets out of her car to confront him, but it doesn't go the way she's planned. She alleges that Ron slaps her, slams her against the car, and tells her to never spy on him again. And while a lot of that is hearsay, we do have some actual physical evidence. Because after Ron was killed during a search of the home, the police were able to find letters from an affair. It was between him and a nurse. And they used the very, very unfortunate nicknames Lollipop and Fluff Licker. Oh, God. (laughs) Yep. I'm blushing. I mean, it's pretty awful. While we don't have proof of his sexual abuse, we know he was cheating on Gail. And we also know that he had the most embarrassing nickname ever bestowed on a person. Fluff liquor. By 1984, Gail is thinking about leaving Ron. If all these accusations are true, yes, please get out of there. Yeah, but what's stopping Gail, though, is that she would lose custody potentially of the kids. And I know what you're thinking. Don't moms usually get custody in divorce court? 
When your husband is as abusive as Gail says Ron is, it's a sure bet. And normally that's true. Gail could leave Ron and probably get full custody, but it turns out, surprise, surprise, Gail has not exactly been the perfect wife and mother. She's got a rap sheet. Since the mid-70s, Gail has this really bad habit of stealing money from her employers. She's not a real, you know, model citizen here. When she was working as a receptionist at a local doctor's office, she would embezzle money. And she used this money to buy things for her kids and her husband. And her kids would describe their mom as the one parent who would get them anything they wanted. And she was known to give elaborate gifts to her friends and family. And eventually, when she was caught embezzling, she was forced to pay back every penny, or rather, she and Ron were forced to pay back every penny that they really didn't have. But at this point, the doctor was really nice enough to not press charges. They did fire her, obviously. This is probably not a great person to be handling any of the money stuff. But they didn't pass on that information to her next employer. Kind of shitty, right? Listen, there was no internet at this point, right? It's like you could include your own references. Telephones. Yes, but like, I mean, that's a lot of work to be like, I got to call, I got to find out where she works. Then you become stalker. It's a whole thing. In 1978, police arrive at the Owens house early in the morning to serve a warrant for Gail's arrest. She gets handcuffed in front of her family and taken into the station. Apparently, she continued forging checks at another doctor's office, and now she's looking at jail time and some hefty fines. Ron has to mortgage their home to pay off this debt, and Gail ends up serving three months in jail. But even after serving time and losing pretty much all of her family's money, Gail still can't help herself. She steals again, but this time it's from a church friend who was kind enough to get her a job at her music supply store. Oh, not cool, Gail. No. I guess this friend is a favor to Ron, doesn't press charges, but they are on the hook for replacing those stolen funds. And it's just this vicious cycle now. The debts pile up, Gail feels like she has to steal money to pay him off, so they pile up even more because she always gets caught. Then she steals more money again and again and again. What is an interesting anecdote that I do want to bring up is the fact that all this is happening. She's stealing money. She's embezzling money. She's spending money. She's clearly not the most responsible when it comes to money. But she's actually the one in the home managing the finances, which is a bit of a head-scratcher, frankly. It makes you wonder whether Ron's frustrations with Gail were solely about sex. It seems like he had plenty of other things to make him frustrated with their relationship. She's put their whole family at risk. They could lose their home. They could go bankrupt. Their kids' lives could be completely upended. And they both care about these kids. I mean, the kids are certainly what matter to Gail. And if this criminal record is going to work against her in a custody battle she might have with Ron, then forget it. She's got to avoid this messy divorce. She cannot leave the question of custody up in the air. In February of 1985, Gail Owens is tired of being jerked around by the men in Bearwater. She wants a man who's going to do this job and do it quick. 
Enter Sidney Porterfield. He's a mechanic and a former convict who lives with one of the men who Gail has already been ripped off by. She's actually looking for this other guy, Bubba, when she meets Sidney. And she promises Sidney $17,000, probably a down payment of forty, if he murders her husband, Ron Owens. You know, he's intrigued, so they set up a meeting on Sunday, February 17th, the day that Ron Owens would be found beaten and bloodied. And that night, after Sunday service, Gail takes her kids to her sister's house to play board games. Now, Ron usually stays after service to play basketball with his friends, and Stephen and Brian, the kids, they usually stay to watch. But this night, Gail insists that they make this schedule change. When she goes to get her kids, she ends up going into her sister's house and playing some trivial pursuit with them at her sister's house until 10.30 at night. And trivial pursuit is really boring. Ugh, and that's really the crime we want to talk about, is how boring trivial pursuit is. Play a better game with your kids. No, I mean, listen, her kids are 12 and 8 years old. It's like she probably should not keep them up until 10.30 at night. It's a school night. And even her sister comments, hey, it's a little late. Don't you think they should go to bed? But it really begs the question, is she just keeping them there, biding her time to allow the murders to go off without interruption? It's interesting. I actually read Stephen Owen's book, which is their son, um, the 12-year-old who found his father, Um Really scarring. Like I can't, I can't even fathom the trauma and bludgeoned uh, and still alive. I mean, yeah. it's not like he walked in and his dad was shot dead, and it's uh, my dad's dead, which would be horrible enough. What he walks in on is so horrible, so mm-hmm. scary. Yeah, and what's and it stayed with him. I mean, like this is an image that will last the rest of his life of his mm-hmm. father. It's just horribly tragic and these kids looked up to their dad like that was very clear he was their hero mm-hmm. i mean what i also think is worth noting is that the kids didn't know there were any problems in the marriage which i think is a testament frankly to the parenting of like clearly clearly there was a lot happening with her financial situation that she got the family in his affairs the kids didn't realize. They just thought that their parents were happy. That's so weird, though, because you say to yourself, okay, so here's this woman. She loves her kids. She's protecting her kids. She's protecting them from knowing the financial stuff. She's protecting them from knowing their dad is cheating. She's potentially protecting them if she's telling the truth from this horrible, horrible thing, which is that she's being sexually abused. So she's protecting them because she says, I'm a mom. It's my job to protect you. And then... She lets her son walk in and be the one to discover what has happened to his father. That, for me, is so confusing. It doesn't line up at all. Well, and then it begs the question, did she know this murder was going to take place? I mean, according to her story, she had asked him to just scope out the area and see. She, I don't think she – so you wonder, did she know? Did she know this was happening? Yeah, and maybe the abuse wasn't happening. I mean, that's the other thing I keep going back to is that right. Gail had this very complicated relationship with the truth. Right. And her sister calls her a compulsive liar. Right. So on the one hand, we have 
that that tells you maybe Gail's not telling the truth and she's only saying this after the fact to excuse um, her taking out a hit. But then on the other hand, the abuse is very probable because in marital sexual abuse situations, that's underreported all the time. People are uh, hold that very near and dear, right? That's something that you don't readily admit to even good friends, let alone cops or doctors. People feel a lot of shame around that type of abuse and don't want to discuss it. So I'm really torn on uh, whether that happened or not, which is a big part of the puzzle, right? When Gail was arrested after her parking lot rendezvous with George James... One thing that she said really stuck out to me. She said she didn't know who killed her husband, and I almost believe her. Gail Owens paid so many men over the course of a few months that in her mind, really any of them could have been the one to finally take her up on that offer. But at the same time, they'd have been doing it for this really tiny, I don't know, 40, 50, whatever it was, this this tiny down payment. (laughs) Right. Keeps getting more and They're doing it on an IOU? But I have to tell you the circumstances of why George James did end up going to the police and helping them out. Because he didn't do that at first. The first thing he did was he sees on the news that Gail Owen's husband is dead. He then decides, you know what, I can maybe get a little more money out of her. So he calls Gail and he tries to blackmail her. And then he realizes that that honeypot has gone dry. He can't get any money because it's all frozen. The accounts are all frozen. So then he quickly changes lanes to say, hey, I should probably protect myself. I've talked to this woman. I know what she's trying to do. And I don't want to get implicated in this murder for a thing that I did not do. So he goes to the police and he says, hey, I have information about this woman. I'd like to help. I'd like to cooperate because the last thing he wants is the police to start looking at him. Well, who knows if he would have been, to be honest with you. It's really tricky case because there's no DNA found at the Owens house. I mean, there is no evidence indicating who committed this crime. But now that George James is cooperating and they have this recorded confession from Gail, they are able to arrest the most recent man that Gail hired to do the deed, Sidney Porterfield. I do want to take a minute and talk about the fact that there's no DNA at the Owens house. For a crime this violent and physically involved, the fact that there is no DNA anywhere from the intruder is shocking. Is shocking. Yeah. I mean, they must have really, they must have, whoever did it knew what they were doing well enough to not leave a trace. 21 times bludgeoned in the head and there's not a drop of sweat. There is not a hair out of place. I mean, it's very surprising. So They arrest this guy, Sidney Porterfield, and at first in his interrogation, he's quiet. But eventually, he admits to everything. He claims the whole thing just went wrong from the beginning, that he was just going to go stake out the Owens house, and he brought a tire iron just in case there was a guard dog, which it feels like, Gail, maybe you should have told him there was or wasn't. But as soon as he starts to cross the lawn, that's when Ron pulls up in his car. Right, and that's unexpected, according to Sidney. So Ron's pulling up. And he starts to pull Sydney inside so he can call the police on him for trespassing. And Sydney starts hitting him. Ron will not let go of him. It turns into a fight. And by the end, Ron has been beaten bloody by Sydney, who bolts from the scene. He claims he didn't even know he'd killed Ron until he saw it on the news. 
okay, two things in this story that pop out. It's it's bullshit. I'm sorry. It's just bullshit. The fact that there's there's no way the crime scene matches this story. He was waiting outside. Ron saw him pulled up, then pulled him inside his home for trespassing. Yeah, that seems like a really crazy move to make. That's not what I'd have done. No, absolutely not. And then we just, if you remember, Ron's car door was open. Also, the keys were still in the back door lock. The scene tells more of a story of an ambush. He couldn't have done that much damage to Ron if he was only trying to escape. I mean, maybe he did get caught while scoping out the house and then just went for the kill. But I really do believe he intended to kill Ron in this moment. Yes, I I guess I see that. But I'm also just wondering, why is he even confessing? We just told you there's no DNA. The cops don't really have anything on him. They don't have the tire iron. They don't have fingerprints. They don't have witnesses. They just have Gail saying, this is the last guy I talked to about doing this. And to boot, Gail's also saying, and by the way, I do not know who killed my husband. Now, Gail, on the other hand, is guilty, 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 and she acknowledges it and she confesses it multiple times. And to be honest, right away, she expresses remorse at what she's done. I mean, frankly, she better be. She just killed the father of her two kids. At this point, she wishes that she hadn't gone through with it. And she says that over and over and over again that she was just desperate. She felt like she was in an abusive marriage and she just couldn't find any other way to escape. But Gail's so remorseful that when the prosecutors come to her with a plea deal promising life in prison, she signs it right away. She says, yeah, I know I'm guilty and I don't want to go to this long, drawn-out trial and put my kids through that and have to talk smack about their dad in front of them. I'm not going to do it. But unfortunately for her, it's not that easy. Because in order for this deal to go through, both Gail and and the hitman, Sidney Porterfield, need to sign the same plea deal, which is guilty with life in prison. But Sidney doesn't sign it. That is a smart legal move, because as far as Sidney's concerned, the police, he's now realized, don't really have evidence against him except that confession he made. The bull story, I think you called it. Mm-hmm. He still has a chance to make it through the trial by the grace of reasonable doubt. And this is a calculation on the DA's part. They can only really try Sydney if it's right alongside Gail. So when Sydney refuses to sign the plea deal, prosecutors decide that even though Gail wants to plead guilty, admits it, and agrees to life in prison, she and Sydney would have to be tried together. And they are seeking the maximum penalty, which is death. At trial, Gail's at a severe disadvantage. For one, she and Sydney are being tried together, and Sydney's going to throw her to the wolves to save himself. Also, any evidence of abuse or affairs are thrown out in the pretrial hearing, so none of it can be used in her defense, which would help get her a lesser sentence than death. What's noteworthy is those letters of the affair were found by the police, and instead of turning them over to the proper chain of command for evidence to get in the hands of the defense team— They were given back to the mistress. So none of those letters were presented to the defense, so they could not use them in the trial. It is the worst of all worlds for Gail. Not only does she have 
basically no legal representation, her family is now being dragged into the trial. Both her son and her sister take the stand against her. There's this really sad moment where Stephen is leaving the courtroom and his mom is trying to look at him and he completely avoids all eye contact with her and it's absolutely heartbreaking. The only silver lining in this situation for her, I guess, at this point, the only redeemable moment, is that because his abuse can't be brought up, at least his name won't be dragged through the mud in front of his kids. In the end, this was not a complicated case because Gail Owens hired Sidney Porterfield to kill her husband. She offered to pay him after it was done, and several witnesses saw her with him the day of the murder. When the verdict comes down, Gail Owens and Sidney Porterfield are found guilty, and they are sentenced to death. While she was expected to be found guilty, the question is lingering. Did she deserve the death penalty? I mean, right away, she resigned herself to a guilty plea, and she signed the deal that said she would accept life in prison. But did she really deserve the death penalty? Gail Owens is the first woman on death row in Tennessee in 189 years. The last woman was hanged in 1820. And the one before that, it was a witch trial. <laughs> Just it's like, like this is old days stuff. Yeah. And Gail's kids, who are now parentless, they go to live with their aunt. Neither will see their mom for 23 years. And Gail really only hears about her son's lives now, secondhand through her cousin, Thelma. She gets set photos and updates, mainly because I guess Thelma feels sorry for Gail and wants to keep her feeling a little bit connected to the outside world in some way. And while she's in prison, Gail turns towards religion. Because she is on death row, she's kept in isolation a lot of the time. So she doesn't have much else to do but think about God and her life. And she, of course, tries to appeal the conviction, but it doesn't really do any good. Her lawyers even try to get her son, Stephen, to help get her sentence commuted to life. But he's the one that was not looking at her, avoiding eye contact in the courtroom, and he refuses. He doesn't want anything to do with his mom. At least that was his story for a long time. But then... He has a family, and something changes for him. After 15 years of cutting off all communication with his mom, he sends his first letter to Gail in December of 2001. This starts a correspondence between the two of them, and they slowly start to rebuild their relationship. And after eight years of this correspondence, he decides that he's going to visit his mother in prison for the first time since she was incarcerated. His goal is to offer his forgiveness. When her execution date is finally set for September 28, 2010, Stephen finally steps in to help. And he writes a letter to the governor of Tennessee asking for clemency for his mom. And in 2010, before her execution date, the governor of Tennessee commutes her sentence to life in prison with the possibility of parole. He bases his decision on the fact that Gail signed a guilty plea deal, and that wasn't honored. And because her husband's abuse allegations weren't allowed to be brought up in trial. Gail, who was once facing death, is now given the opportunity at a new life. 
On October 7th, 2011, Gail's parole is approved and she walks free. This is a really hard case. I have a hard mm-hmm. time knowing how I feel about it. I I can say with certainty my heart goes out to her kids because I can't imagine. Yeah, the what struggle. a nightmare they lived through. Totally. I think it's also really frustrating. I think it's what interests me about this case is sort of the failings of the criminal justice system, right? Like this woman pled guilty and then was sentenced to life. Like it just it feels like she didn't totally get a fair shake. At her trial, right? Like, No, it at, sounds like they were withholding things. You're not allowed to do that. At the time, there were plenty of comparable cases of women snapping, murdering their husband. And in one case, there was a woman who murdered her pastor husband. And at the time, she claimed battered wife syndrome. And she ended up getting maybe a couple months probation and custody of her children. A far different outcome than Gail Owens. I wonder, did Gail not want to plead battered wife syndrome because she didn't have a proof of it? Is that, or did no, she not want to she, do it because she didn't want to talk about that in front of the kids? I mean, who knows? Coulda, woulda, shoulda. But what we do know is that the evidence being thrown out in the pretrial of affairs or abuse didn't allow them to even claim that. In fact, When she was arrested, she had a lawyer come in and interview her, and this lawyer was like, oh, this is a battered wife syndrome case, easy, but she didn't have enough money to pay him. So he left. She got a public defender, and the public defender had to ask the judge if they could get an expert to come in to interview her to, you know, back up the claims of battered wife syndrome, but the judge refused to provide that resource because it had to all go through the court. Wow, that's so sad because if she's telling the truth about that, that was such a a dark burden to sort of shoulder alone and to have on top of you experiencing all that, to not feel like you can tell anybody and to be protecting those kids from knowing what's going on. And I think too, I mean, this is also 85. Like the way we talk about sexual violence and marital abuse was also very, very different And I think you mentioned talking about protecting her kids, and I do think that was certainly a motivating factor and continued throughout her time in jail. You know, for example, while she was in jail, some news of her case got to the Oprah show, and Oprah herself actually asked Gail to come on and talk about her case or to at least have a representative talk about her case on Oprah, which frankly would have given huge media attention to the case and could have potentially helped in her appeals. Because we do know that the media does drive some information in the criminal justice system. We just know it. That's just what happens. But Gail refused time and time again because she didn't want to hurt her kids by, you know, dragging her ex-husband's name through the mud. And in a way, it felt a little bit like she was still protecting her kids. Well, you refuse Oprah, Gail. I don't know what to tell you. You're not going to get a car. That's for sure. Oh, God, quit. I don't think that would be the episode where she surprises the woman who hired a murderer to murder her husband, a car. I don't think that would happen. You never know with Oprah. That's what's so great about Oprah. I do want to fin- I just do want to put a little button on it where Gail did pass away in 2019 and Sidney Porterfield, who stayed on death row his entire life, um, died in jail in 2014 from natural causes. Yeah, I think the cold comfort in this case is that 
her son Stephen was able to forgive her and that at least Gail knew that when she died. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the following. The book Set Free, Discover Forgiveness Amidst Murder and Betrayal by Stephen Owens and Ken Abraham, and a pair of articles in the Nashville scene entitled Once a Wife and Mother in a Deceptively Perfect Home, Gail Owens is now the first woman sentenced to die in Tennessee in nearly 200 years by Brantley Hargrove. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.